0: Welcome to Rich Answers, a public affairs program of the Conference of Churches and a production of the 224 Ecospace, where changemakers work, create, and lead. Today we are fortunate to have with us Reverend Marie Alfred Harkey, who serves as the president and CEO of the Religious Institute, a multi-faith organization dedicated to advocating for sexual, gender, and reproductive health, education, and justice in faith communities and society. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. We're glad to have you here, and we know that this is a critical time in the United States looking at the religious landscape. So more than 8,500 clergy and seminary presidents belong to your organization, so you represent a body of people who are believers and advocates. And last week, the top policy-making body of the United Methodist Church voted to reinforce the global denominations bans on same-sex marriage and LGBT clergy instead of lifting them. So we know that you represent a network of people who are really thinking about faith communities and the church. And with this finding, what's your general sense? What's the general response of people from this response with the United Methodist Church?
1: I I think the response that we've heard most consistently is just the pain of LGBTQ people, whether it's within or outside of the United Methodist Church, Um, the pain of human beings being discussed as if they are an issue or a problem rather than beloved children of God. And I think that sort of putting the focus back on human beings is what we've been trying to do as we've been called to be alongside United Methodists who are doing this work And there are Queer United Methodists at almost every level of the church who have really been doing an amazing job of trying to get their voices centered. And unfortunately, that's just not what happened last week.
0: And so we know that a lot of people are reeling from the experience. Talk a bit about the Religious Institute and the work that you do as a whole so we have a better context of your work.
1: Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, So the Religious Institute exists basically to address those areas uh, where religion and sexuality meet, which is a lot of places, right? And so we do work inside congregations to help congregations break the silence around sexuality, become more sexually healthy, put in place policies and procedures to protect people. Um, And we also do workshops and trainings for congregations and seminaries and denominations and then on the outward facing work, we do a lot of work in terms of public policy and trying to change the conversation around religion and religion and sexuality because um, there's a misperception that all religious people are, for example, um, anti LGBTQ or um, anti reproductive health care. Um, and that's absolutely not true, as are more than 8,500, you know. Uh, Person network would attest. And so we work to get that message out. And we work closely with secular allies like Planned Parenthood and Freedom for All Americans and the ACLU and others to help them craft a faith voice and get faith leaders in the struggles for justice that we're all really concerned about. So that's that's sort of the, the broad strokes of our work. We adopted a new vision statement last March where we said um, that, our, that our very bold vision is a world where all bodies and spirits are free from oppression.
0: And isn't that the way that we all want to live? Right? Absolutely. Yeah,
1: it totally is.
0: And so when we look at what's happened with the United Methodist Church and the findings in the course of the last week, and you think about this work for people to be treated as people, unfold that a little bit more. What does it mean when the church is having a conversation like this with people that are right there in the midst? Not really being paid attention to.
1: I mean, at its worst, and 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 not and this is not an an exaggeration. At its worst, at its worst, it means death. Um, LGBTQ folks who don't have family support, and lots of times that family support is not there because of religious beliefs, um, are far more likely to um, to die by suicide, to be out on the streets by themselves. To, to have all kinds of harmful things happen. So it's not an exaggeration to say that having these kinds of conversations that ignore the very humanity of people is death-dealing. But beyond that, it's also, I mean, the reactions that I've been seeing from my friends, both United Methodist and not, who are people, who are queer people of faith, are just heartbreaking. It is not a comfortable thing for us to be talked about as if we are an issue to be solved. We know that that is not the case. We know that as queer people, we, um, as those of us who identify as Christians, we follow Jesus in the same way that other people do. And the notion that the Jesus that we follow would somehow kick us out of something is just one that is deeply harmful, deeply ugly, and we know it not to be true. But every time one of these conversations comes up again, it it reopens wounds for a lot of people, just a lot of people. So it's, it's, it's harmful.
0: And unpack that a little bit more when it comes to the experience of people who are queer, who are faithful, what is the response or what is the expectation for people after a finding like this?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure, you know, in, in terms of United Methodist leadership, what, what they think the the response will be. I think that it's been really interesting to, to watch how queer United Methodists have said, this is our tradition. You can't take it from us. You cannot take this away from us. We believe in this tradition. We believe in the Wesleyan tradition. Like, we're not going anywhere, right? And so... I think that we've seen this faithful witness and this resilience and this absolute faithfulness from queer United Methodists. That's going to continue. So I don't think they're going anywhere. Um, in terms of you know sort of the overall tenor of the conversation, I think that I really think that there's not there's no going backwards. You know we're out here as queer people of faith and we're not going anywhere and we exist in all denominations in all races in all ethnicities in all countries in all families in all fam (laughs) probably mm -hmm. so i mean we're not going anywhere so i think that um you know while our united Methodist can are reeling and grieving and doing what they need to do around this particular decision um they'll they'll always they'll be there they will
0: and it is something to really take a look at. I happen to be a Methodist also, not a United Methodist, name right. an amazing person. And within the construct of United Methodist or the Methodist tradition with John Wesley are the three simple rules. Do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. And so how can this declaration follow those rules?
1: So I think what's interesting is around the do no harm is that the Queer United Methodists who were there and who were gathered in one section of the arena, auditorium, whatever it was, they had planned a a, a witness for if this happened, and their chant was do no harm because clearly this was a ruling that is doing great harm to God's people. Um, And I think more importantly than the chant itself was the fact that, again, there were human beings there in the room who were being affected, who were not being heard, who were not being centered, who were not being listened to. So obviously, do no harm is not a principle that's in play at the moment with this decision.
0: And it's, it's impossible for it to be an experience of doing no harm when we're looking at the reality of saying there cannot be gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, clergy, and there cannot be same-sex marriage. Right. Two very concrete things. How can that be, and what is to happen to the people?
1: Right, and I I think that what is to happen to the people is a really good question, because they're already there. Um, You know, I think one of the most beautiful things that I've seen is over the last few years, in 2016, a group of like 111 queer United Methodist clergy wrote a love letter to their denomination before their regular general conference. This was a special general conference. But before their regular general conference, these queer clergy risked their vocations, their livelihoods, their pensions, whatever else, and literally came out to their denomination and said, we are here. We are serving faithfully in this tradition. And we want you to know who we are. And then during that general conference, almost every day, there was a witness outside as you came into the place of just queer clergy in their rainbow stoles, holding signs, saying who they were. Um, and that witness apparently didn't make any difference for this, this body that came together specifically to discuss what they call human sexuality, but what we know is really just discussing the lives and, and dignity of LGBTQ people.
0: And so is the expectation that clergy who are queer would disappear or lose their jobs, what is the follow-up to that?
1: Yeah, I think that's really unclear at the moment. I do, Um, and I wouldn't want to speculate, not being a United Methodist and certainly not being in United Methodist leadership, I think that's super unclear. The policy itself won't take effect for, I think, at least a year. Um, There are legalities to be worked out in in their own Judiciary Council and that sort of thing, so I can't speculate about what may happen, but obviously those folks aren't going anywhere. Obviously their ministries are going to continue, and I think the question now before them is how? Um, And I trust that Queer United Methodists will be able to figure that out, um, as they have so often proven that this tradition, they're not going anywhere.
0: We're talking to Reverend Marie Alfred Harkey, the CEO of the Religious Institute, and we'll be back after the break.
2: sometimes you just can't believe the things your eyes see so much injustice in this life and it's happening right on your tv screen so you drop to your knees and you're praying because you can hear him saying he can't breathe and it's all so overwhelming because you know there's nothing you can do to help him continue to breathe
3: broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round and you can't find a fighter but I see it in you so we're gonna walk it out mountains we're gonna walk it out and move And for that we have each other of the egg I will rise a thousand times again and we'll rise up
4: body says, I'm tired, or I'm hungry. Are you listening? Would you listen if your body said, I have pain and pressure in my abdomen. I feel bloated for no good reason, or I get too full too fast. I'm spotting, but I've already gone through menopause, or I have to go to the bathroom more often and more urgently than usual. These can be signs of a gynecologic cancer, like cervical, ovarian, uterine, vaginal and vulvar cancers. Symptoms aren't the same for everyone. If your body says something may be wrong, please listen. And if it goes on for two or more weeks, see a doctor. It may be nothing, but find out for sure. Learn the symptoms and get the inside knowledge about gynecologic cancers. Call 1-800-CDC-INFO.
0: Welcome back. We're talking with Reverend Marie Alfred Harkey, who's the president and CEO of the Religious Institute, and we're talking about the ban that has come out in regards to the United Methodist Church. Welcome back. Thank you. So in our first segment, we're giving a little background on what's going on with the United Methodist Church and their special session. So how does the United Methodist Church stand up compared to other denominations when it comes to this?
1: Well, I think it's really interesting. As as one of the largest, if not the largest, mainline um, denomination in the United States, it's also the only one that is truly a global denomination. And that has some implications for the polity and the voting and that sort of thing. So um, it's an interesting question. In terms of LGBTQ issues, I mean, there have been open and affirming United Methodist churches for at least 40, 50 years. The question has always been, how would the leadership of the church react if uh, its clergy wanted to perform same-sex marriages or if clergy, um, if queer people felt called to be, um, to be clergy people. And what's interesting is, among their different annual conferences, which is sort of like a diocese or a, a, a geographical um, area, there are different policies. Um, some annual conferences are happy to ordain um, LGBTQ folks, others will not and that's part of what this plan that was passed by the Special General Conference wants to address. It wants to root out that that um, ability to make their own decisions um, from annual conferences and sort of force them to police the sexual orientation and gender identity of candidates that come before them for clergy or episcopal um, uh, positions. So it's it's a very It's a very odd um, place to be because there are many 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 queer people who will tell you that they are part of incredibly diverse and welcoming United Methodist congregations, and yet there's this this decision at the leadership level that is so out of step with that
0: and the question would be, what is the belief that there is a harm if there are gay lesbian, bisexual, transgender clergy people same sex marriages what's the fear
1: here? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And I think that I I spent the two days glued to the live stream of that special general conference, not the least of which because my own faith journey began in United Methodist Church. Um, So it was really interesting to hear the rationale um, and to hear people speaking against the inclusion of LGBTQ people. And I think for many of them, they, they have a sincere belief that that Scripture teaches against us, right? Um, Despite the fact that that has been debunked in numerous ways and spaces and places um, around the interpretation of Scripture and and a million other things. So I think there are um, people who have that sincere belief. I think, though, like in society in general, there's also a fear of losing power, a fear of straight, cis, white men losing power, right? Um, which is where you often get pushback in justice movements, is is when the people who are used to having the power suddenly realize that they may not always have the power.
0: And when we think about the wholeness of families and individuals, we would hope that the church cares about the wholeness of families and individuals and not issues of power as a priority.
1: We would hope that. Um, And it remains to be seen. And I think that What's important to remember is that there are so many United Methodists who do hold that position, who do care very much about wholeness and healing and justice, and who are part of or running congregations that also feel that way. So I think there's a a danger in demonizing an entire denomination, right? We don't want to do that. We know that there are wonderful United Methodist clergy out there, Um, and lay people and churches. And so I think it's really important for those of us who are not part of the denomination to to hold that tension um, along with the decision that was made by the leadership.
0: And so unpack a little bit uh, where the United Methodist Church stands as compared to other denominations. You know, where are we looking at these issues in the midst of other mainline denominations?
1: Yeah, so other mainline denominations, um, for example, so I think uh, probably the most public one has been the Episcopal Church going through its own um, difficulties around same-sex marriage and sexual orientation and gender identity, Um, and that went on for almost 40 years. No, probably more than 40 years, and at their last general convention, the Episcopal Church um, almost settled the question but they still have dioceses where there are bishops who are not affirming and who have not made provisions for people who want to be married, for same-sex couples who want to be married in their own churches to be married. Um, In terms of other denominations, I mean, most of them, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, has a policy that allows um, congregations to decide whether they will hire um, a queer clergy person, whether they will do same-sex marriages, um, the Presbyterian Church USA has, has removed the language against same-sex marriage and ordaining queer clergy folks from its um, official teachings and documents. I'm not well-versed in Presbyterian polity, so I don't have the right words for that. Um, so most denominations are, most of the main lines are further aligned, obviously the United Church of Christ makes, um, you know, is very open and affirming. Although I will say that not even every United Church of Christ church has gone through like an open and affirming process. So I think that um, it's, it's, it's scattered, right? But other main lines have made more progress on this issue than the United Methodist Church has for any number of reasons. And then you have my own little tradition, the Metropolitan Community Church, which is a a queer denomination born for and by queer people. Um, And I feel very proud of that, but also we're pretty small now. Um, And you can't find an MCC church in every city where you go. So it's important that um, we, we get to a point where queer Christians in particular, and queer religious people more broadly, Aren't afraid to go into a place of faith wondering if their humanity will be questioned.
0: Unpack a little bit the shrinkage of an MCC church, for example, because there was a time when a person couldn't be out and queer. That's right. And so they belonged to MCC. What's happened to the people?
5: Mm.
1: I think several things. I think that, um, you know, some folks are back in their mainline traditions where they're welcomed. Um, and then I think that uh, MCC is suffering in the same way that other other that mainline traditions are from a decline in church attendance overall in the united states mccs are very strong in southern states like florida and texas and we also have lots of churches internationally so in places where lgbtq acceptance in civil society is less you will see us more Um, and i think that's an important piece to recognize um, that 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 need is still there. And even our own church here in Hartford, you know, we can see that we are serving a community that no one else does. And we're doing it in a way that not only serves the church community itself, but also the queer community around us.
0: And that has a tremendous impact in any yeah. community. Yeah. We're talking with Reverend Marie Alfred Harkey, the President and CEO of the Religious Institute, and we'll be back after the break. You have been listening to Rich Answers, a public affairs program of the Conference of Churches.
5: Dad, this is fun. I didn't think I like kayaking.
6: Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But uh, I think it's time to head back in.
5: OK. Can we come back? Sure. Tomorrow?
6: <laughs> Let's check with mom. Hey, be careful getting out of the boat.
5: It's a kayak, Dad.
6: (laughs) I'm going to return the kayak. Just make sure you have everything.
4: Yep. Can we walk home?
6: How about a taxi? 233 North Maple, please.
4: It's a short fare from your neighborhood to your naturehood. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a neighborhood park or green space near you. Also, find fun activities to do like boating and biking or camping and hiking. Plus much more. It's all right in your naturehood.
5: Best. Day. Ever.
4: A public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Forest Service.
7: That she should the share they still
8: thinking
6: square feet what would you do with that kind of possibility would you strategize your future or get lost in the past will you fill it with stories or use it to empty your mind would you explore your spirituality or focus on improving your community? Will you use it to work late? Or just work it? Could you create lasting impressions? Or a brief delicious one? Our vision for the 224? 30,000 square feet of endless possibilities.
0: Welcome back, we're talking with Reverend Marie Alfred Harkey, the President and CEO of the Religious Institute. The Religious Institute has on their website a love letter to LGBTQ United Methodists. I wanna play a segment of that on the show and then we'll talk about it when we come back in. Whatever happens at General Conference. You're not incompatible with Christian teaching. You are not an abomination.
4: You are not a burden. You are not a theological problem to be solved or an issue to be debated.
8: You are not a threat to the unity of
1: the church or a source of division.
0: You are not the charges that were brought up against you or the hate mail that you received.
8: You are not the threats to your ministry, the threats to your life, the threats to your family.
4: You are not the betrayal you've experienced. The
1: whispers at church or the condemnation preached from the pulpit.
4: You are not the closet. You're not yet ready or able to leave.
6: You are not asking too much to have your dignity and worth acknowledged or to demand that the harm stop now. You are not asking too much to refuse to leave behind your LGBTQ siblings. You are not asking too much to have your fabulousness recognized.
3: You are not lacking in dignity, integrity, or worth.
2: You are not reducible to the outcome of general conference. Whatever, Whatever happens, happens at a general, general
4: Conference.
2: You are a child of God, beloved by God,
1: and beautifully and wonderfully made by God. You are the image
4: of God. You are allowed to be bold,
7: <coughs> to be yourself, to be complicated.
1: You are allowed to be mad, or sad, or angry, or frustrated, or desperate, or tired.
3: You are allowed to be fully human, to laugh, to cry, and to be imperfect.
1: You are allowed to ask for more than crumbs, to have a vision for the future, to speak that vision aloud, and to fight to make that vision a reality.
6: You are allowed to take a breather and to prioritize self-care.
8: You are fabulous and fierce.
4: You are vast. You are worthy. Worthy of a life free from fear and anxiety. Worthy of safety.
0: Worthy of community.
1: And so worthy of love. You are enough. Whatever happens at General Conference,
6: we will give you the space and support that you need.
4: We will listen to you and share your stories. We will
2: work to end the harm caused in the name of religion and break the silence around gender and sexuality. We will
1: center your experiences as LGBTQIA United
4: Methodists.
6: We will fight for justice that is deeply intersectional.
4: We will not leave anyone behind.
1: We will strive to be better allies apologize when we miss the mark and build this future together we will be by your
0: side
2: we will be by your side
0: we will be by your side what a powerful piece how did that come about
1: you know it came about as we were figuring out how to be alongside united methodists during this time and and trying to make sure that our support was helpful to them and so our director of Uh, LGBTQ programs and communications, Drew Kono wrote this piece and put it out for people to sign on to, Um, and more than 2,000 people did. I think it was a really powerful testament to how much um, other LGBTQ people and just other people of faith in general wanted to show their support for what Queer United Methodists were going through. And then he had the brilliant idea of sending an email to all the folks who had signed saying, Um, we want you to video yourself doing one line and he put up a sign-up form and I think it was filled within like two or three hours. I mean, it was, people really do want to offer that kind of support. And so you have all of these people from all across the country, all over the place, just reading those lines. And it, it really is. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It speaks to what is the best in us as people of faith and as queer people and as people who love queer people. And, um... I think I think it was a it's a really needed antidote to sort of the institutional oppression that was going on during that that special general conference
0: and the special general conference happened but at least there was a conversation because we have so many denominations that are embroiled in silence when it comes to the topic of queer people so there's something to be said for at least talking about it what can we do now to make a difference especially as we move forward in all of our faith communities so With the Religious Institute, we know that you do education in faith communities and help people address some of these important topics. What would you say to someone who's listening and says, how can we start having conversations in our church to make Mm -hmm. it a more welcoming, safe, inclusive place?
1: You know, we always talk about at the Religious Institute that the pastoral comes before the prophetic. And so the first conversation to be had is a pastoral one about how are we treating each other? Um, it's interesting, Anytime I go into a congregation, and I get called in a lot of times uh, by other colleagues, because you know, having a visiting person in to open up the conversation is way easier. Um, so that's one hint, call me. Um, but you always end up finding out that somebody's grandson is trans, or somebody's granddaughter is a lesbian, or something, you know, things that you didn't know until you opened up the conversation. And so I think that, especially in this moment, You can use this social moment as a teaching moment to just open up a conversation. Some people are comfortable doing that from the pulpit. Others do it in maybe an adult forum session or even just to have information around for people to read about what happened and what this means. But I think anytime you have a moment like this, you can use it as a teachable moment, just as you would in your family or in school. You can use it as a teachable moment to talk about and start bringing out issues around sexuality and gender that are so often silenced in faith communities.
0: And we know, just like you spoke earlier, about the reality that so many people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, queer, are those who might take their own life by suicide, especially if they're teenagers and young people that are being faced with this. And so there's a pastoral issue that's right here in the midst of it of how we can make sure we're taking care of those that are in our congregation, what would you say about creating a pastoral environment for people?
1: Right, I mean, and I think that's that's actually not that difficult to do if your faith community is actually welcoming. Um, We definitely caution uh, against a bait-and-switch approach, which a lot of churches will do. A lot of more conservative churches will say that LGBTQ people are welcome, but what they really mean is that they're welcome to come and hear how they should change who they are. Um, So that's not, uh, that's obviously completely unhelpful. Um, But I think that there are so many ways to signal your openness as a community. Um, Things that seem as easy and trite as having a rainbow flag on your sign, or, you know, being careful about your use of pronouns, talking about partners and spouses, um, there's lots of ways to signal your openness. Um, and that's the beginning of opening up those pastoral conversations, is for people in leadership to signal their openness to having them. And that's, that's really important, and as you said, there's a study by the Family Acceptance Project that talks about how much less likely um, queer kids are to have harmful behaviors, including uh, all the way up to taking their own lives, if they have family acceptance. And for many people, family acceptance starts with their faith community and what, and what their faith community teaches.
0: And we recognize that within the faith community context are a lot of these issues where we can do harm, and we don't mean to do harm, but we can do harm by our religion. And I know that's the heart of your work with mm-hmm. the Religious Institute. It so is. talk a little bit more about how you help to create a space and place yeah. within faith communities for everyone.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I say often is that because religion has done such harm to queer people and others, women, et cetera, et cetera, um, black people, I mean, the list goes on, right? It is our responsibility as religions and religious people to help undo that harm, to knit people back together. And what has been true is that people don't lose their faith. Those of us who are people of faith, we continue to be people of faith, and the question is how our faith community is going to be with us. And I think, you know, in terms of what can faith communities do, I think it's really important to be open about your welcome and celebration of queer folks, not tolerating us, but being open to what do we bring that might transform your faith community in some really interesting ways? What are what do we bring that will give you a different point of view on the world? Because I, I think that we are long past the time when queer people are willing to be given the crumbs under the table of tolerance and yeah, you're welcome here and you know, it's fine, just sort of keep it quiet, don't hold hands, you know, that kind of thing. I think we're well past that time and I think where we need to be is figuring out, at least for my own Christian faith, I talk about figuring out how we're going to be transformed into the likeness of Christ by encountering people who are different from us and who bring us different images of the divine. And I think that that is where welcoming, celebrating the queer folks among us comes into play. And I think that churches I think churches naturally know how to do that. There's just a lot of fear.
0: And there's something powerful you said about the difference between tolerance mm-hmm. and inclusion. Yes. Path
1: yeah. So tolerance, and I mean this has been a stance for a lot of mainline churches. Tolerance says you're welcome here, but please don't quote unquote flaunt your relationship. You're welcome here but you're not going to see anybody like you in leadership. You're welcome here but we're not going to talk about the fact that we have members who are transgender or who are married to same-sex partners. We're just going to keep that on the DL. And that's not that's not true welcome. That's not celebration. That's not really seeking to be transformed by what other people's gifts and 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 Beauties are and I think that that misses the mark in some really significant ways of what it means to be religious community together
0: And for someone who's listening this morning What books would you suggest they consider as they're trying to unpack their mind and start to think about? Oh, let me kind of take a look at these topics.
1: That's a really good question. We have, a, we have a great little primer at the Religious Institute called A Time to Build, and it's about how to create a sexually healthy faith community. It's full of just really practical suggestions about, like, what are some easy ways in to start addressing sexuality and gender topics and issues in your faith community that don't have to be some full-fledged sermon from the pulpit. And it also gives you some tips about how you might want to um, evaluate where you are Um, Things you might not have thought of, like what are the publications in your tract rack, and do you as a pastor know of um, mental health providers who are queer friendly, those kinds of things. So there's a lot of really practical information in there, Um, and I think it's a good place to start just because it's a very basic sort of primer on how do we get to the next point.
0: And so how do people get a hold of that?
1: So religiousinstitute.org, under resources and publications, really easy to find it on our website, um, and uh, you can order it from there.
0: And we thank you so much for your work in the community and the world, and we appreciate the work of the Religious Institute. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Shelley.
9: yeah Hope you come see me soon cause I don't wanna go alone I don't wanna go alone Don't
6: 7,000 high school students drop out every school day. That's one every 26 seconds. So here's a 26-second message of encouragement.
0: Hey, I'm Matt.
5: I know, sometimes you think no one cares if I finish high school, right? Well, I do. Me and thousands of people you've never even met. Okay, here's the thing. When you graduate, you have better opportunities. To make more money, have a cool job, you know, just have a better life so the next time you need a little support a little motivation just know there are a whole lot of shoulders for you to lean on so stay in school and graduate
6: do you have 26 seconds to convince a student to stay at their desk now you can share your message of support at boostup.org we can keep students in school visit boostup.org and take the first step brought to you by the u.s
0: army and the ad council You have been listening to Rich Answers, a public affairs program of the Conference of Churches and a production of the 224 Ecospace. Reach out to us and tell us what you think. Look for Rich Answers, the Conference of Churches, and me, Reverend Dr. Shelley Bess, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like us, follow us, share us.